Good morning. Man, Justin's got a stool. Stuff got real, you know. Um, here's the thing. If you know me, you know I won't be sitting here long. And if you know me, you're going to learn that uh, when I say that today feels different, you'll know that I'm telling the truth. I mean, most of you probably getting to know my personality a little bit each time I come here, it feels a little different, but today, I just believe. I was in the back, I was listening to God, and I could hear Him saying, they are about to encounter me today. How many of you want to encounter God today? How many of us want to receive what He has for us today? A moment ago, as, as Scott was praying, I saw hands go up for those who said, I need prayer. Listen, I want to ask this question. Are we willing to do whatever God asks of us today? Are we willing to do whatever God asks of us today? Because that requires our yes. And we may not be, we may not know what yes means yet. We may not know quite what we're saying yes to, but that's what faith is. And that's what makes him our God versus us being God. That's what, that's what shows that we are truly graven in his image versus us trying to still make him fit into ours. Amen. So this morning, we're in the series called This Is Us, and two weeks ago, we, we looked at how we want to be a welcoming environment because of the model that Jesus gave us in treating everyone as an insider. And last week, we looked at what it means to be Bible-centered. As a church, we've chosen to live under the authority of Scripture because it's through the Scripture we find the instruction to live like our Lord Jesus. Amen? Authority to the scripture. See, here's the thing. Culture has a message it wants to tell you. I'm going to lean with scripture. And today, as I was sitting in the back, God just said, Justin, were you willing to share this? As we talk about the third core value today, and it wasn't planned, it wasn't prepared, but I got to be able to tell you, if God says do it, you do it, right? Amen? We'll be in Acts 9 today. I'll let you know that in advance. We're going to get there in a moment. But first, God's told me I need to share this truth from Proverbs 16. And so I'm going to read this. Um, today, our core value is we believe in life-changing relationships. We believe that genuine transformation starts with a relationship with Christ that includes a lifelong journey best shared with others. Can I tell you a personal testimony? Okay. How many of you have ever come to that place in your life where you find yourself kind of in crisis to believe. We just sang about the valley. We just sang about walking through death. How many of you know what it's like to walk through the valley? The deep and the dark, the places of depression, you know what I'm talking about? If you know what I'm talking about, then you're going you're gonna to agree with this. I was in one of the darkest periods I've ever been in in my life. It was a little over a year ago. I was sitting up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep. I had had a, a series of months where I, I was not sleeping. Our house had just gone through this massive like reconstruction. It wasn't because we planned it. Our entire upstairs flooded, forcing all the walls in my second story to come down. And we, we took our kids and said, hey, guys, um, we're going to have a camp out in the living room. You know, and you take this monstrous and uh, like calamity and you go, okay, we're going to try to make it fun for the kids. Dude, when you're sleeping in your living room with your kids in a hammock for like six months, it's not fun anymore. 
It's hard to sell them on, hey, we're still camping. Really? And there I was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. I was out of my hammock, sitting there on the couch, and I was reading. And the Lord started to show me in Proverbs 16 some things about himself. I was just reading the character of God. And I came to a verse. And for the first time in my adult life in Jesus, I looked at that verse and I didn't trust what it said for the very first time. Let me read it to you. Here it is. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. I read that and I thought, you know, Lord, I don't have what I would quantify as a lot of enemies in life. I don't have a lot of people that I think hate me, but I do have a small few. I've got a small few that do hate me to the core of who I am, and I promise God there's nothing that I can do that is going to right that wrong in that relationship. I, so, God, here it is. You said if... If my ways please you, you'll turn even the heart of my enemy back to me and make it peaceable. God, why are you lying to me? Because I look at that person, I watch what they do, I see what they do, I've seen them in the eyes, I know this person, I know what made the break in our relationship, I know what severed it, I know what took place, and here's the thing, there is nothing that is going to turn that heart back to me, nothing, and I can't do a thing about it. And so I, I looked at the scripture for the first time in my adult life and I said, God, you're lying. I woke my wife up. She was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I can't sleep. I told her, I said, look, I just read something that has rocked me to the core of who I am and I've never called God a liar. I literally just called God a liar. She's like... Super distraught, crying, going, what is wrong with you? I'm at the deepest and most dark point in my life. And now I have just been lied to by God in my mind. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. God, I know specifically the person that will never turn their heart back to me. There's no way. I sat up the entire night. Wrestling with that verse, crying over that verse, thinking, what have I done? I have given my life to Jesus. I've given my life to the ministry of Jesus. And I just found out Jesus is a liar. What do I do? And it was about 6.59. My, my alarm was set to go off at 7. I rolled over and I, I went to stop my alarm because I didn't want to wake up the kids and Heather because I was trying to get up. I didn't sleep, so I was like, I'll just go ahead and go get a shower and try to figure out what to do with my life today because everything has changed because of this one verse. I roll over and on my phone where my alarm is, before I can even hit my alarm, I read a text from that one person. 
that one person the night before who I said, God, you'll never turn their heart towards me. They'll hate me forever. There is nothing that can ever bring us back into restoration. Nothing that will reconcile our hearts to be at peace again. There's nothing. Even though I've walked in your ways, there's nothing. Nothing. I don't believe that's a lie. It'll never happen. Sat up all night from that very person. Before I can look at 7 o'clock, there's a text that says, Hey, it's been a while. We've been through a ton of struggle I don't know that we'll ever restore to where we once were, but it's time to bury the hatchet. It's time to reconcile. It's time to say we're sorry and try to move forward. That one person, I don't have a ton of enemies, one. I fell out of my hammock, hit my knees and wept before the Lord on my face. Going, God, I'm so sorry. It's true. It's true. Every bit of it's true. You couldn't be any less a liar. I cannot believe that it's that person, that one person reached out when I haven't talked to them in nearly a year. I thought there's no way. God, thank you that you've never lied to me. You've never broken a promise. And if I'll just trust you at your word, even if it doesn't make sense, you will always prove yourself faithful. And I'm in relationship with that person today. Now, it may not mean much to you, but I want you to think about your enemies. I want you to think about how God could turn their heart. And I'm telling you, when I say I don't have a lot of enemies, there was one person on the list. And when I read the next morning from that one person, I know there's a God who loves me. And we just sang it, fights for me. But if we're going to let God fight for us, we got to stop fighting Him. Amen? we got to stop calling Him a liar. we got to stop when God says, it's time for you to respond. we got to stop doing this, folks. we got to stop grabbing that seat and white-knuckling it. When God is stirring within us in moments like this, at the end of a service like this, and it starts to writhe in us, and He's going, respond. This is it. This is your time. Follow me. And we go... And we don't mean to, but we functionally call him a liar. This is that time where we trust and we say we believe that genuine transformation starts in a relationship with Christ that includes a lifelong journey best shared with others. If we will, because we as a church, I'm going to give you my two points today right now. Here they are. We're going to unpack them through scripture in a moment. We value life-changing relationships with God. Because that's where it starts. We value a life-changing relationship in the person of Jesus Christ with God. Number two, if you start there, you'll see life-changing relationships with others. If you'll start there, you'll see life-changing relationship with others. I promise, and I would not make a promise to you if I hadn't been through this crisis of belief myself. How many of you have been through a crisis of belief, at least one in life to this state? Let's look at what I believe might be arguably the most important crisis of belief known to man. In fact, many theologians think that what we're going to look at today in Acts 9, this may be the most powerful conversion the church has ever seen. Maybe the most important conversion the church has ever seen. And that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus into 
Paul the Apostle of Christ. Now, I know there's a movie out. I have not seen that movie. I've heard it's awesome. I want to see that movie. That is not what led Aaron and myself to this passage today. We know the power of the impact of God on Paul and the impact Paul had on the church, our present-day church. And so we thought, collectively, this is precisely where we need to be today. But in order to understand the depth of the change that took place in his life, you've got to understand a little bit about who Paul was when he was born Saul of Tarsus. And so I'm going to jump right into the passage itself, and hopefully we'll, we'll get there. In verse 1 of chapter 9 of Acts. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. Then he fell on the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here, let, let me explain. It was a few years ago, I was in Canada, and I was, I was at a teaching at a university there. I sat on a round table for the, theological leaders. So I was asked, me and other religious leaders were asked to sit on a theological round table. There were Muslim leaders there. There were all different faiths, Okay. And we were asked to give our position, and we were asked to answer questions about why we had said position. And my, my lead on that panel was this passage. I came from the vantage point of, of Saul of Tarsus, and I said this, if, if Jesus were not someone that could change lives, then why would Saul of Tarsus, what was it about Jesus that led Saul of Tarsus to leave Fame, fortune, and status as the Hebrew of the Hebrews, his own testimony himself, Philippians 3. He was it. Why did he leave that behind to be shipwrecked, chained, living in a, in a small cell, writing letters to the church at large with rats and disease, and ultimately to die a martyr? And he says, I would give all that up again for one day to be here in this place writing to you. What was it about Jesus that would change this man so much that he would give up fame, fortune, and his name being in lights that he would just want to be with Jesus even in a darkened cell but in the center of peace? I had several Muslim students come to me afterwards and want to meet one-on-one Because they needed the answer to that question. Here's the answer to that question. Here's what it is. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Still breathing threats and murder. Why was Saul so mad? See, right here, it doesn't sound like someone who's willing to stay in a prison and give up his fame. Still breathing threats and murder. What is it about Saul that makes him so angry? Well, here it is. 
Saul says of himself that he was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Of, you know, those in the Jewish faith, he was circumcised the third day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a, a, for a zeal persecutor of the church. He was zealous. We all know this about Saul. But he was zealous before he became a Christian. That's what I hope you'll see today. Of Pharisees, he was waiting for a seat on the Sanhedrin. What that meant was this. Saul... Uh, you need to understand religious Hebrews, Hebrew, Jewish, or, sorry, two the same word. Jewish educational structure started like this. At about five or six, Hebrew boys and girls were asked to go to school. And when they went to school, they would go to a Hebrew school called, for a place in study called uh, Beit Sefer. Okay? Beit Sefer was about a four or five year time of study where they were asked to memorize the Torah or the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they had to memorize them word for word. So this right here memorized. Okay, word for word. A bunch of five, six-year-olds coming to school to memorize Every single word in that text so they would know the law. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, commit this to your mind, whether it be sitting, waking, walking, or sleeping. Commit this to your mind. They would walk around with these phylacteries on. Phylacteries was a contraption that took the scripture and literally put it before them all the time. They would have to peer around scripture just to see where they were going and just to address those who were talking to them because they were committing it to memory. Because at 10, they were going to be either selected or they would wash out. And both were respectable, but here's the point. At 10, all the Jewish boys were then tested on their knowledge of the law. And the best of the best went on. But those who were not the best of the best, they'd wash out, they would return home, they would learn father's trade. This is where Peter would go home and become a... a, inherit like a massive fishing industry with his father. And there was no dishonor in that. He became one of the best fishermen known until... Jesus comes and says, come and follow me. Drop your nets. I'll teach you to be a fisher of men. So at 10, Peter was not one of the best of the best. And I only say Peter because he's the leader to the disciples that we know. The apostle Peter. He washes out at 10. Saul of Tarsus does not wash out. He is invited to study further. And he, is, he walks into the next level of Jewish education system called Beit Talmud. Beit Talmud means the house of learning. And here's what they had to do. In the next five years, usually between 14 and 15, they had to memorize not just the law, the Torah. They had to memorize the historic books of the Old Testament, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, minor and major, and they had to memorize the poetic books of the Old Testament. So from Genesis to Malachi memorized word for word i want you you see that memorized word for word that was all of them anyone who was selected to study at that level it says that saul of tarsus was selected because he had risen above his other contemporaries at the age of 13 he didn't even make it to 14 15 he had it between 10 and 13, he had memorized all that text. And he had such a gift that Gamaliel, the head of the Sanhedrin, who was a well-respected Pharisee, the Sanhedrin was their known Supreme Court. The only way you got on was to die 
okay? A, a seat is removed and someone can enter. So Gamaliel comes along and calls Saul of Tarsus as his understudy, as his disciple. Now, you need to understand how weird this is because after Beit Talmud, you enter a third realm of Jewish study, which is only for the very best of the best of the best called Beit Midrash, which means house of study. It means apprenticeship. And so when a disciple is called by a rabbi after an excruciating interview, grueling, asking for them to recite whole passage of Scripture word for word to see if they know precisely what they're talking about in the law, the prophets, the historic books, and what they would do, it was, listen, listen, it wasn't even if you did well on that interview that you got to become a disciple. It was if you did well on that interview and the rabbi who's interviewing you decides this kid can do my job. It's only if they see that kind of potential in you that you get invited by the, by the rabbi to say, come on, come after me, come follow me. And then every 14, 15-year-old kid would leave their mother and father, move in with their rabbi, and literally study with him day and night, taking on their job, taking on their persona. It's, it's kind of like this. In all apprentice levels, it looks like this. Uh, you watch me while I do. Then I'm going to do and I'm going to let you help a little bit. Then you're going to do and I'm going to help a little bit. And then the last of that progression is you're going to do and I'm going to watch and step away. And you're going to eventually, I'll retire, you take this job. Gamaliel, the head of the Sanhedrin, selected Saul to take his job at 13. Not 14, 15, two years earlier. Saul of Tarsus was so gifted that Gamaliel took him into his house and said, I want you to be my disciple. So what happens is Gamaliel and raises Saul in such a way that Saul just blasts past everyone else. Like he leaves everyone else in the dust. Everyone reveres him. He's not only been selected by the highest, he is not only himself the best. So he gets fame, fortune, the house on the hill, the great American dream right? He gets it all. And he is just waiting for someone to die on the Sanhedrin so he can take a seat at the table, so he can be selected next. He's the next person in line. Well, in Acts 5, you see something happen. In Acts 5, this starts to mess up for him because in Acts 5, you see Peter and the rest of the, the apostles and the disciples of Jesus, and the birth of the church explodes onto the scene. Remember in Acts 2, you have uh, the Holy Spirit comes and 3,000 men, not including women and children, are baptized. So they're growing by the thousands, okay? So it comes to Acts 5. And, and it says that Peter has walked into a region and he is healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's, he's performing miracles in the name of Jesus. It says literally in the text that people were lining up hoping that the apostle Peter, the fisherman, who washed out, by the way, would walk by and they would hope that his shadow would cast on them so they might be healed. Peter is jailed, along with the other apostles, are thrown in jail, and it says in Acts 5 that, that a jail cell couldn't even hold them. An angel in the middle of the night comes and opens the door and sends them out and says, go, continue teaching. They walk into the synagogues, and they're teaching in the name of Jesus. Well, this is creating a massive problem for anybody in the Jewish system. Why? Because converts are leaving Judaism to follow the way, to follow Jesus. 
And so this is messing with the very thing that Saul has given his life to. And so here in Acts 5, it says that Peter, they found him freed of a jail again. A jail can't hold him. He's, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching in the name of Jesus. And they find him in the synagogue. They bind them. They bring him, stand him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is there to rule on, that, on their behalf give them a sentencing, and it says Gamaliel speaks up and says, hold on, time out, these men must be removed, everyone else, let's retire to our own chambers, and it's just the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel says to those men something very important in in Acts 5. He says, guys, we've seen this before. So let me tell you, if these men are doing a work on their own, it'll come to nothing. If it's about them, it'll come to nothing. However, if these men are of God, then we don't want to stand in the way. We don't want to be on the receiving end of God's judgment if these men are of God. Now, we killed Jesus. These religious leaders killed Jesus for being a blasphemer, okay? So behind closed doors, if these men are of God, let them go. They come out, bring them back in and say, and he says to all of those listening, Saul is in the room. Hey, look, uh, we're going to beat these guys and we're going to flog them to the limit of the law. And then we're going to tell them to stop preaching in Jesus name. We're going to send them out. But here's the thing. If they're of God, we don't want to be on the receiving end of God's judgment by messing with what he was doing with them. So if they're of God, uh, we don't want to get in the way. So we're going to beat them. We're going to flog them. We're going to tell them to stop teaching Jesus. And then we're going to let them go. Can you imagine how fast the blood boils inside of Saul at this moment? Can you imagine? Wait, what? If these men are of God, we killed the man they're teaching in the name of for blasphemy. Wait a second. You're my mentor. You're the head of the Sanhedrin. We all listen to you. If, what are you talking about? If, if these men are of God, how could this even be? Have they poisoned you too with this message? They're poisoning the people, the very people that we lead. They're poisoning the very status I hold. They're they're poisoning all the people who follow me. If, what are you talking about? It says in Acts 8, when they martyred Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the young feet of a man named Saul, who who would oversee all the proceedings. There is a snap in Saul. The moment he hears his leader, his mentor, the one he's given his life to follow, say, if. Kind of like the night that I said, there, this can't be true. His entire religious system, religious order, everything he's given his life to becomes, begins to unravel. Because he has pursued God as best he knows how. He has been following after God as best he knows how. He's been following after God based on how his mentor taught him, how his religious system taught him. He memorized the entire Old Testament word for word, and he blew past everyone else. So if I've been pursuing God in this religious system, and I've been doing everything that you just said... And what your if denotes is I may 
have been pursuing the wrong thing. I may have been chasing the wrong deal that I just gave my entire life to. You're saying if? So, Acts 9.1. Saul is on a rampage to stop the continued rise of the church in its fame. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So what if he found, so if anyone he found was of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him, and a voice spoke as he hit the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response, because he's never heard the voice of Jesus before. He doesn't know it. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Listen, kick against the goats, that's old language for this. It's hard for you to fight my prodding you. It's hard for you to fight against where I've been leading you. I've been trying to reveal to you myself. I've been trying to reveal the very power and presence of God through my disciples. And there's not a jail cell that can hold them. I was hoping you'd see that. And then I, I, even, I even tried to prod you when I made your very leader, the one that you worship, the one that you follow, the one that you want to be like, the one you're trying to ascend to, the one that you're dying, you're hoping that if you'll just get his job, as you go as high as high and Judaism will allow you, you'll finally have inner peace because I know you don't have inner peace. You're pursuing that. And when I made him say, if, You took offense, but I was trying to get your attention. I was trying to get you to respond to me, but you took offense. Anybody ever been offended when God tried to get your attention? And all he wanted was for you to respond. Why are you kicking against my prodding? Stop fighting it, son. Stop fighting for yourself and join the one who fights for you says, so trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? A statement of submission. Lord, I'm no longer following Gamaliel. I'm no longer following anything like this. I'm following you. Now, you've got to understand, though. You've got to understand. He was given letters to go to Damascus to bind all those who were of the way, all those following Jesus. So, for him in this moment right here to turn his back on Judaism and everything it afforded him, And to turn his back on persecuting all the Christians. He was utterly alone in that moment with that voice, with the light shining around him in that. that. Who does he have? No one. He has Jesus and that is it. He responds to God because a life-changing relationship with God is going to affect the way others respond to us. But his life gets changed by God right here. And here's the thing. Jesus is the only thing he has. Watch. It says, Then Saul rose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one. But then he led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he sat there three days without sight, neither eating or drinking. Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus... And his name was Ananias, and he had heard from the Lord in a vision. Ananias, and he responded, Here I am, Lord. See, Ananias had heard the Lord of the voice, was sensitive to it, and when God spoke, he responded. 
He says, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire of the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus is there. Behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all those who, are, who call upon your name. Uh, namely, hey, he can, he can take me to prison. Is this a trick? Is this some sort of trap? God says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the, and the children of Israel. For I will show him all the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And this is awesome. Ananias went his way despite all his fears, despite all his reservations, despite knowing that Saul could flip it on a dime, put him in cuffs, take him to Jerusalem in prison, or kill him. He pushes aside his own fear and he trusts the words of God. And in faith, he steps in to the house. He lays his hands on Saul and says, brother. That word cannot be understated. Brother. What do we call each other? In Christ, we call each other what? Brother. Sister. The first word out of Ananias' mouth to Saul is brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when they had given him food, he was strengthened. Saul spent some time there there with the disciples of Damascus and then he left. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Listen, what would have given Saul the ability to teach in the synagogues of Judaism? What would have given him that kind of clout? What would have given him that ability? Every synagogue around was, had an open-ended invitation for Saul to come and teach. Why? He's the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's the Jew of the Jews. That's all they know of him. And when he shows up and he starts preaching Jesus, it says, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? It says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the very Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. By stepping into their synagogues and teaching Jesus as the Messiah, he was taking his own life into his hands. Ananias responding and going, brother, he was taking his own life into his hands. Listen, the man who said, I would rather have Jesus because here in this moment, in this light shining, I have inner peace. I've never had peace like this. So even if the Jews who want to follow me or the Christians who want to revere me, it doesn't matter. I'll choose you. But because he chose him, everything around him changed. Even the one who feared him says, brother, first. What's about to happen is you read on, you see about how Barnabas, when he goes to Jerusalem... He's, he's greeted by Jews who want to kill him. He's greeted by Christians who are terrified of him because his reputation for breathing murderous threats has preceded him. 
They're not wrong to be afraid. And Jews are not wrong to hate him. This is the one that surpassed them in all their classes. They were trying to be like him. Now they're trying to take his life. Because he's teaching Jesus as the Messiah. And guess what? Barnabas steps out from all the disciples. Barnabas steps out. says, Barnabas takes a risk. Verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he was in fact a disciple. They thought it was a trap. Says verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and that he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem coming in and going out. Listen. Not only did this dramatically change the life of Saul, Barnabas heard about what took place and he witnessed how powerfully he preached Jesus in the synagogues. He takes them to the apostles and he sticks his neck out for him. He said, look, we need to welcome this guy in. He's not, he can't do this on his own. It's a we thing. It's not a me thing. We can't expect this dude to fight the kingdom and kick down the darkness all by himself. But he's with us. Stop being afraid. There's no trap. Jesus has changed this guy's life. Thus, I'll stick my neck out for him. He's my brother. Just like Ananias. He's with us now. And it goes on to say, That Paul, the apostle, will suffer shipwreck and imprisonment, near death, and ultimate martyrdom because he chose Jesus. But his own words, his own words, I would choose it all again for one day with him. I would forsake all that I was, Philippians 3, for one day with him. To his own understudy who came after him, his disciple, Timothy, he wrote these words. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I was doing everything as best I knew. I was pursuing God the only way I knew how. Then I met God, I encountered God, and changed everything. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all the longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Zeal and passion grounded in healthy relationship. I want, to, I want to say this again. Saul of Tarsus had zeal and passion before he ever met Christ. Otherwise, he would have never been able to accomplish all that he did. Word for word. Got that? But zeal and passion grounded in a healthy relationship and submission to God bears life-changing fruit. When we are engaged in a godly life-changing relationship... And the mission of Christ is carried out in the church as a whole. And it's strengthened, encouraged, and fulfills its purpose. If you were to read on in Acts 9, what you'd find is this. It says that the church grew in number and grew in strength. How many of you have ever been to a weak church? It's okay to admit that. How many of you have ever been to a place where the presence of God was not evident? It seemed a little stalemate. 
seemed weak, didn't seem sensitive, seemed like we were just running through the rigor, going through the motions, doing things as we thought we should, going through the motions. Anyone here personally had a period in your life, maybe it's been well over, maybe it's not, where you've just been going through the religious motions. They grew in number and they grew in strength when they did what God asked them to do. His response, Lord, what would you have me do, should be our response this morning. I'm going to tell you what happened in the life of my wife. And I know, listen, I'm over today. Is that okay? It's raining. Where do you got to be? My hope and my desire was that it would rain as furiously in here as it does out there. But I'm not asking for water. I'm asking for everlasting water. I'm asking for the Spirit to reign in this place and that we would be a people obedient enough to say, Lord, what would you have us do? My wife and I were talking. It was back in 2009. Uh, I need to explain, like, my wife was raised in the church. Not just raised in the church. She was raised in the fishbowl of ministry. Her father was a children's pastor. She came into the church early. She did them all. How many of you guys remember uh, RAs, GAs, quiz bowl? Just say it out when you got it. I mean, we'll go down memory lane here. She had led Bible studies. She had been in Sunday schools. She had led in, in VBS. She had led mission trips. She could quote to you scripture that had been br- branded into her mind. She could do all those things. And guess what? She married a minister. So she left one fishbowl to enter the other. Now she's staff wife. And I didn't know it till 09 that she was wrestling with something. Every church that we served in together, every church that she took the staff wife position in, every time she would sit on the front row with me and they would give an invitation to receive Jesus, something in her bubbled up. She would get hot under the collar. She started to question. She started to question everything. She didn't know why she was questioning everything. She had been in this so long. She had led in this for so long. She had no idea why this was happening. So she would play it off, fight it off. She didn't talk to me because she didn't want to concern me or embarrass me. We're different like that. I go, honey, I just read this. Jesus is a liar. I got to tell you. She's like, I've been struggling with with some faith stuff for years and I'm going to hold it to myself. So she was struggling. We go to dinner one night in 09 with some friends and the wife of my really close friend, my accountability partner from college, looks at her and says, honey, that was me. I wrestled with my faith. I didn't come to Christ till later. I was raised in the church. I was around it all, but I, I was living a lie. I was pursuing God as best I knew how, but my life was not unlocked. I had not encountered Jesus to the point of submission. And when she said that, Heather began to tremble. We got in the car. We were driving back home. It was a long drive. And she looked at me and she told me. She unpacked the whole story. And she said, I I need Jesus. I, I don't want to be afraid anymore of that. I need Jesus. I know what this will mean, but I need Jesus. Can you lead me to Jesus? I was like, Listen, you've been around this longer than I have. Lead yourself. <laughs> you know, let's, let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. But you know it. 
She gave her life to Christ that night in the car. Listen, two weeks later, when we baptized her in the church, I step into the baptism. Today is a very important day. It's an awesome day. I get to baptize someone very special. She comes down. You could hear the gasp. What? The whole, the whole church goes, oh my gosh, it was such a surprise. But I also heard something else. You see, what she was afraid of was that what? It was that pride that kept God at bay. What will people think? Here's what happened. I heard what? And then I heard the air go out of the room. Because everyone said, well, if she can do it. And guess what that sparked? It sparked a yes in our people that they didn't even recognize. They did not know. Revival began to happen within our church. People were coming to Christ. People were getting saved from children to adulthood. We saw people respond to Jesus because one person was bold enough and brave enough to say, I don't care about being famous on Instagram. I don't care what other people might think. I'm more concerned about being famous in my father's eyes than anyone else's. My God is encountering me. He's calling me and he's asked, what will you do? I'm simply saying yes. Lord, what would you have me do? It starts here. And everything in her life since has changed. When you look at your life, you evaluate the life and the relationships you have. I told you, I don't have a ton of enemies. Do you? When you look at your life and you recognize the power or the lack thereof of the presence of God in your life, you have to go back and look and say, how many times has God asked you to say yes, but you said no? When you look at the relationships around you, are they life-changing? Because of the encounter that you've had with God and you've been obedient to say yes to, even when it was uncomfortable, even when it might mean you stand alone, did you still say yes so that it could permeate beyond you to the rest of those you encounter? You see, because here's the point. This is it. This is the moment right here that we come to and we, we, we meet with Jesus. We hear his truth. We open the word. We see what is embodied in the person of Jesus and when people encounter him. Theologians believe that the most impactful conversion that ever existed might in fact be Saul of Tarsus. And we watch that and we go, man, that's amazing. That's awesome. We hear how God wasn't a liar in Justin's life. We hear how God saved the church girl. What's God want to do in you? If God were walking through this crowd right now, Jesus himself permeates this, these halls, these, these aisles, and he comes straight to you. He grabs your face, he looks you in the eye. What does he want from you? And are you willing to do whatever he asks? He asks. 